Trainer Talks and Tales acknowledges the traditional owners and custodians of the land in which we're recording this podcast, the Turrbal and Yugara people of Mianjin. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Trainer Talks and Tales love having an array of guests with a variety of opinions. However, the views of the individuals do not necessarily reflect the perspectives of the host facilities. Hey everyone, and welcome to Trainer Talks and Tales. My name is Tess and this is Daisy. Hi everyone. All right, welcome to our second episode of the year. We're excited to be back this year. Um, we have a great episode for you today. We're actually talking to our very first veterinarian, um, but we'll get into that in just a moment. First of all, Daisy, how are you? How's your week? Any recommendations? Yeah, I am excited for this episode too. Um, my week has been pretty good. Um, I started back at work after having nearly four weeks off. So um, it's nice to be back. Nice to be back amongst the animals. Came back in with a bit of a bang though, because obviously uh, people who might not be aware, but here in Queensland, we have had a hell of a lot of rain. Uh, so it involved a lot of rain in some of the habitats. So we've been doing a lot of cleaning to start off the week, um, but it's been nice to get back into training, presenting, um, got to hang out with penguins today, which I love. So yeah, overall been a good week. I don't have any recommendations, but Tess, I was actually going to throw in something a bit random for today. I listened to a podcast completely non-animal re- relevant, but they did a orange and lemon of the day. And I was wondering if you want to share your orange and lemon of your day and I could share it of mine. So your orange is just like the best thing that happened to you today. And the lemon is like something a little bit sour. So that wasn't the best part of your day. Oh, geez, Louise, way to put me on the spot. Do you want to go first? I have like seven seconds to think about it. Okay, cool. Well, I'm going to start with my my lemon of the day is the fact that it is so muggy and in one of our back of house areas, the aircon is broken at the moment. So it's making us really sweaty and a bit stinky when we already smell like fish all day anyway. So that is my lemon of the day. My orange of the day is that on Tuesdays, we generally do our voluntary waits for our penguins. And we've been having a few troubles with a couple of birds that have regressed um, slightly with this behavior. But today we managed to get all 18 of our penguins through the podoscope, um, which we utilize for our weights and managed to get weights on all our birds. So that was a training win. Oh, nice one. How good. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I've got mine. I've thought about it in the last six seconds. Um, <laughs> I reckon my lemon would be my peregrine falcon, Charlie is um she's got a big personality and she's testing me because um she has a great rapport with me um but she can be kind of sassy to other people so seeing the difference between her and me and uh um sorry her um and me and someone else is kind of like crazy so my lemon is trying to get past that but i think it's just time um and, you know, it's actually a challenge, so it should be fun. And my orange is that we have um, barking owls that we've only had for a few weeks. Um, they're little bubbers. They're only one year old and they're flying to us and they're really confident. So we had some great training progression with them today. So that's mine. Cute. I love that. Good job considering I threw you on the spot then. <laughs> yeah. I was like, gosh, this is like ins and outs, Daisy. I only learned this seven <laughs> seconds ago. I got to learn it. Um, <laughs> but how's, how's so... the rest of your week anyway? <laughs> Yeah, good. Um, very busy in terms of training lots of new birds, but also new staff. So I feel like 
every day is just so go, 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 but makes the day go fast. So that's good. Um, I actually have a recommendation this week, Daisy. You wouldn't bloody believe it. But um, I tried to make it a bit marini. There's this uh, documentary I watched called My Octopus Teacher um, on Netflix. And it was quite cute. It was just a diver um, in South Africa that kind of met this octopus and saw it daily. And it was obviously very scared of him at first and then got used to his presence. And they kind of built a bit of a bond if you will and um, the octopus was no longer scared of him and would hunt uh, around him and go about its octopus day and it was just a really cool documentary I haven't cried but I'm pregnant so easy to do (laughs) so (laughs) um, that's my recommendation for the week anyway let's get into this episode did you want to introduce our guest Daisy yeah absolutely I'm so excited for this one and like you mentioned back with a bang with our very first veterinarian we're really lucky to chat with Dr Claire Madden who is the head vet at SeaWorld Um, she shares her entire journey in becoming a vet and it's a really interesting and super inspirational story that she's got from where she started off and how she was able to progress to what she's being able to do now and really cool to kind of hear what SeaWorld's up to um, with some of their rescue stuff, their rehab stuff, along with managing uh, obviously a massive collection of a variety of different species they have at SeaWorld. So I was super excited with this one. So we really hope that you enjoy it too. Let's do it. Claire, thank you so much for joining me and Tess on Trainer Talks and Tales. We're excited to have you as our very first guest of 2024. Thank you very much for having me. I can't believe we're already into 2024, but let's get started. I know, it's crazy. Um, But before we get into the hard questions, we always love to start and we're going to continue this tradition into 2024 with our Fast Five. So are you happy if I get straight into that? Sure, let's go for it. Okay, penguins or pelicans? Oh, pelicans. Ketchup or barbecue sauce? Ketchup. A bucket list country you'd love to visit? Sri Lanka. Seals or dolphins? Oh, I didn't know that one was coming. It changes every day, changes every day. Today, I must say it was a seal. Seals today, okay. tomorrow with the <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and then finally, Instagram or TikTok? Instagram for sure. I cannot work TikTok out. Oh my gosh, Instagram. Yeah, no, yeah I agree. <laughs> I agree with you there for sure. Thank you for answering those. You did a great job. And again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We are so excited to chat to our very first veterinarian as well. You are the lead vet at SeaWorld, which is on the Gold Coast. But Tess and I are really interested in hearing a little bit about how you got to that job and what your pathway was. Yeah, I suppose I I did this pathway the very long-winded way, so I'll try and keep it as short as possible. But um, going back to high school days, I always knew I wanted to work with wildlife in some capacity, and I had a massive, massive soft spot for Australian native animals. I mean, why wouldn't you when you look at the plethora and the unique array of Australian native wildlife? So as soon as I left school, I got out and did a Bachelor of Applied Science and I majored in wildlife biology. And off the back of that degree, I started working at Crumbin Wildlife Sanctuary and actually did a two years honours 
uh, looking at the reproductive assessment of echidnas. Um, and that's looking at the short-beaked echidnas with hopes to translate that information into the long-beaked echidnas over in Papua New Guinea, which we know are critically endangered. And from there, I got into zookeeping. Um, so Karumban offered me a job off the back of um, that honours research and I became a trainer at Karumban and I worked in the presentations department and koala photos um, before moving on to Australia Zoo where I worked at the big cat department at Australia Zoo and furthered my zookeeping role. Um, and then from there, I was actually uh, thinking about how I could, again, go back into conservation because I really enjoyed that uh, echidna research topic that I was doing. And I was actually going to go back and do my PhD on echidna reproduction. And the head vet, who's still the head vet down at Crumbin, Dr. Michael Pine, said to me, being an echidna specialist isn't going to take you around the world because obviously we know echidnas are only found here in Papua New Guinea. So he was the one that said, if you're going to do a PhD, have you thought about vet? And I think like 99% of people in this world, you always have that self-doubt. I'm not smart enough to be a vet. I don't have it in me, but I did it. I, I got into vet school. I did the five years of full-time study with the ambitions to get straight back into the zoological industry. I know how important the zoo industry is for conservation and I am a mad conservationist and I wasn't going to do five years to become a vet to not do conservation medicine. So in my final year of vet school, I went straight back to Crumbin Wildlife Sanctuary to Michael Pine and I said, well, here I am. I'm about to graduate with my vet degree. I now need a job. So he offered me to go in there voluntary whilst I was still studying my final year and then offered me a weekend uh, position in the spring of my first year out to help with the influx of wildlife. Um, and then went back to Australia Zoo as well. I did the same thing. I'm, I'm here now. I'm a qualified vet and I loved working at Australia Zoo um, and went back there and worked in the zoo department as well as the Wildlife Hospital Australia Zoo. And one thing led to another. And um, yeah, went and uh, got a full-time position down at Zoos Victoria amongst all of this. So I moved down to Victoria and did a three-year stint down there uh, before getting the call and, and being asked to come up and apply for the position here at SeaWorld. And I've been here for the last five years and um, I'm not going anywhere. It's the dream. Wow. How is that for a career? I honestly was just ticking them off mentally in my head. <laughs> Australia Zoo, um, you know, SeaWorld, Paradise Country, Zoos Vic. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Um, you just didn't mention Lone Pine. I'm just surprised you hadn't <laughs> listened to that. <laughs> that's that's so I, incredible. Not, what an impressive repertoire. <laughs> I, think, um, I think it's a testament to Australian zoos. Like every facility or every organisation I've worked with have been amazing. You know, the people have been amazing. The conservation outputs have been incredible. And I think it's a testament to how um, high the standard Australian zoos are. We, you know, we should be pretty proud of what, of what we're able to produce in the zoos here in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the fact that you started as a keeper like that. Is just incredible because um, there's nothing better than you know starting off as a keeper or seeing as a, or starting as a trainer and seeing firsthand um, exactly what it's going to be like to work with a vet and you you know exactly what that experience is. So I love that even more. That that's um, incredible. So well done, well done. <laughs> Uh, thank you. And it's funny, like I'm still a vet, but I'm still a very hands-on vet. So I still love to tackle a good hose and rake a good exhibit. I still like to get down and dirty and, and be tactile and, and sort of in contact with the animals because it is important or it's, it is, it's very easy as a vet to 
be a little bit removed from the animals and be that more clinical role in that zoo team. Um, but having come from that zookeeping background and being used to being hands-on and working so closely with the animals, I'd like to think, but I certainly know it's a pleasurable part of the job is having that closeness and that you know, tackling, no, everyone loves to tackle a good hose, don't they? I think you're not a zookeeper <laughs> until you tackled a hose and tried to wind a hose back up. So, yeah, you can, you can still, yeah, I suppose in my work ethic you can tell that I've come from that zookeeping background. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm a little bit interested to know, did you have to do any further education when transitioning from terrestrial species to marine species? Yeah, that's a really good question. We don't have anything formal here in Australia. There certainly are dedicated programs over in Europe and the Americas where you can dedicate your veterinary studies to marine wildlife. Um, but a lot of my learning has been learning on the job and every day. That's sort of one of the challenges, but also one of the joys about being in this position as I am learning every day. And it's really important to be humble enough to be able to say that you don't know. And I, I think that's something that the trainers at SeaWorld, I hope it's something that they respect me for, that if they do come to me with a question that I can't quite answer, that I am able to say, look, I don't know that answer. Um, let me get back to you and do some research and reach out to colleagues overseas to help me. So, no, there was no formal training per se when I did the transition from terrestrial to marine, but a very, very steep learning curve, shall we say. I yeah, love that. Absolutely. I also respect that so much when, you know, I come up to our vet at Lone Pine with a question. I was like, what's this? Or like, you know, what do we do about this? Or blah, blah, blah. And she's like, oh, uh, I'm not sure. I'll come back to you yeah. once I've asked uh, someone. And you're like, I love that so much. Not Rather than being yeah. like, I think it's this. I'll give you an answer and just kind of, you know, fluff it along. Like, oh, I don't know. And I will get back to you. Like, that's so great. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, that's great. That's the joys working with wildlife or, or in zoological facilities, regardless of what your role is, is we're constantly learning. We're constantly, you know, got research projects out there that are pushing our knowledge and pushing our skill set. So I think that's one of the joys of the industry, regardless of what position you play. Absolutely. And would you mind telling us a little bit more about the collection of species at SeaWorld that you actually oversee as a vet? Yeah, um, that's probably one of the biggest gratifying parts of the role is it's such a diverse array of animals that I get to work alongside. So um, we've got the incredible animals that are home to SeaWorld. So we've got uh, three species of penguin, five species of seals, two species of dolphins um, and a range uh, of rehab birds. So we've got some cormorants and pelicans. Uh, we've got three polar bears who are absolutely adorable. And then we've got the incredible array of fish, uh, sharks and rays that make up our Shark Bay area. So an incredible spread of um, animals at SeaWorld, but that's only one component of my role. Um, the other component of the role at SeaWorld is we've got our SeaWorld Foundation, which is our research and rescue components. So at any given day, we can get called to respond to a rescue and we will rescue any marine wildlife from fish, uh, marine birds, right up to your larger marine mammals. And we've also engaged with a lot of research projects as well. So we're always working closely with a lot of the universities, both nationally and even internationally these days, helping with sample collection and data collection to contribute to some really awesome research projects. So those three components make up my day-to-day -day at SeaWorld. I can imagine that every day is so insanely different for you, which would be so fun coming to work every day and never really knowing what you're going to get. Yes, that's exactly right. So we like to say that we do have planned procedures, but a large proportion of my day is made up of those 
unplanned procedures. And just for an example, this afternoon at two o'clock, got a call for an injured dolphin. I'll be heading three hours north at three o'clock tomorrow morning to go and check out this dolphin. So um, it is very varied and very diverse, very dynamic, but I wouldn't have it any other way. It suits my personality perfectly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, lucky we're recording so- this at 6 p.m. so you can go to yeah. bed early. <laughs> I know. I messaged the vet nurse that's coming with me and I'm like, I'll be picking you up at three o'clock and I wish I was joking, but I'm not. But we've got to do what we've got to do. This is a provisioned animal, which means that it comes in at a certain time every day and it comes in at seven o'clock. So factoring in that three hour drive, being at that location at seven. So um, yes, it's crazy, but there's a logic behind the craziness. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what a rewarding position that you have being able to help all of those animals, plus the collection that live at SeaWorld too. Now, here at Training Talks and Tales, we love talking about training, but I'm actually really interested, I guess, as a vet, how has that constant advancement of training helped you with the care of the animals that you look after? Training and conditioning animals has absolutely revolutionised veterinary medicine. So it's not only improved husbandry profoundly, but it's also Truly, it has just um, changed the way that I approach animals and and veterinary care. Um, I'm very fortunate with the animals that I work alongside, mainly, you know, the pinnipeds and cetaceans, so seals and dolphins, they're very good and very their cognitive capability is quite high. So doing voluntary participation and training them complex behaviours to assist uh, veterinary needs is quite a easier thing compared to some species Um, but we are pushing for 100% voluntary participation in all preventative medicine um, care that I've implemented for all of our seals and our dolphins and that's now even extending through to our birds so our three penguin species and our pelicans um, we're getting them to do voluntary participation of their health care and we've even this year or last year sorry 2023 and in going into 2020 24 we're now getting some of our shark species to participate in voluntary ultrasounds and voluntary blood draws um, with a with a recall so training has been incredible when it comes to our veterinary procedures um, and there's less and less restraint less and less stress on the animals and subsequently less stress for the veterinary team as well when the animals are choosing and electing to participate in their health care it's been amazing It's actually incredible and it still blows my mind every single day hearing about some of the advancements and some of the training concepts that are able to be done, especially I think with a lot of the marine species. And I remember when I first heard about like a voluntary gastro sample from a dolphin, incredible. And recently at the conference, we heard about the amazing work the polar bear team have done um, with Mishka, I think with her um, thrush that she suffered and how that has, you know, massively improved the quality of lives of so many animals. It's so impressive. Yeah, and I suppose on that point with Mishka, so uh, for those who didn't see that presentation, she regularly got urine scolding, which is quite a common thing um, to have with with polar bears in managed care. Um, And we used to have to anaesthetise her so we could clean that area and hygienically keep that area safe from ongoing concerns. And her mum was predisposed to this as well. So she was at risk of having regular general anaesthetics so we could manage quite a simple medical problem. But now we've been able to 
voluntarily train her to present that back end. She lies down and, and opens her hind legs so we can access that area um, and clean and, and even clip the fur from that region, all in voluntary participation. So it is not only safer um, for us, um, but also so safe for her because having to go through an anaesthetic for a large animal like a polar bear is really high risk. Um, and now we're able to manage, as I said, this simple medical problem without that risk attached to it. So it's huge. It's huge for the trainers, but it's, you know, ultimately it's for the animals and, and look at the outcome we've been able to achieve. Yeah, it's huge. And like you said, the potential is just um, incredible. So it's it's really exciting to think what else that we're going to be able to do in the next couple of years as well. So it's um, forever changing and it's an exciting concept, that's for sure. Um, now, you mentioned before um, you're a great advocate and participant in the amazing work SeaWorld uh, Foundation does. Can you expand a little bit more about what the foundation actually achieves? Yeah, so last year... Um in particular was a really, really big year for us. So if we focus on last calendar year, just as a bit of a testament to the incredible work that the foundation does, um, the, there's two components. There's the rescue component as well as the research component. So we had over 450 rescues just last year alone. And when we talk about rescues, um, they're large scale over multiple days, um, bringing animals into care with really long rehabilitation periods. Um, and it's not just usually one or two staff if we're responding to a dolphin on a beach or a whale on a beach there's sort of 12 to 15 staff that will go out at any time to respond to that animal but 450 rescues doesn't sound like an incredible amount particularly if you're comparing um you know to the amount of admissions that Crumbin Wildlife Sanctuary um, see, for example, they're up into the thousands and, and Australia Zoo, they do an incredible job with triaging local wildlife populations. But the scale of our rescues is, is immense. Um, so 450 is huge. Um, we had several stingray rescues in there, a lot of birds, seabirds, you know, fishing line entanglement, fish hook ingestions. They're probably the most common presenting problem that we see come through the foundation, um, but a lot of whales. We had um, a lot of whales strand last year. We did see an increase in the humpback whale population um, migrating past our coast. Uh, several humpback, um, sorry, big, uh, bottlenose dolphin rescues as well within that. And also we're seeing more and more sharks, grey-nose sharks in particular with fish hook um, injuries. Uh, we get a lot of those recreational dive companies out there now, you mentioned before um, you're a great advocate and participant in the amazing work SeaWorld uh, Foundation does. Can you expand a little bit more about what the foundation actually achieves? Yeah, so last year... Um in particular was a really, really big year for us. So if we focus on last calendar year, just as a bit of a testament to the incredible work that the foundation does, um, there's two components. There's the rescue component as well as the research component. So we had over 450 rescues just last year alone. And when we talk about rescues, um, they're large scale over multiple days, um, bringing animals into care with really long rehabilitation periods. Um, and it's not just usually one or two staff 
staff, if we're responding to a dolphin on a beach or a whale on a beach, there's sort of 12 to 15 staff that will go out at any time to respond to that animal. But 450 rescues doesn't sound like an incredible amount, particularly if you're comparing, um, you know, to the amount of admissions that Crumbin Wildlife Sanctuary um, see, for example, they're up into the thousands and, and Australia Zoo, they do an incredible job with triaging local wildlife populations. But the scale of our rescues is, is immense. Um, so 450 is huge. Um, we had several stingray rescues in there, a lot of birds, seabirds, you know, fishing line entanglement, official congestions, they're probably the most common presenting problem that we see come through the foundation. Um, but a lot of whales, we had um, a lot of whales strand last year. We did see an increase in the humpback whale population um, migrating past our coast. Uh, several humpback, um, sorry, big, uh, bottlenose dolphin rescues as well within that. And also we're seeing more and more sharks, grey-nose sharks in particular with fish hook um, injuries. Uh, we get a lot of those recreational dive companies out there, Flat Rock off North Stradbroke and also um, down near Byron Bay and identifying these incredible sharks with, which, with large fish hooks coming out. So we are doing a lot more rescues in that space as well. So... Yeah, as we said before, it's never a dull moment. It's absolutely a team effort. I do not do this alone. There's a huge rehab team behind it. Turtles, we saw a huge influx of marine turtles needing assistance and our Shark Bay team are incredible with rehabilitating those guys and giving them the daily care that they need to get them back to good health. Um, yeah, and then they've got the marine stuff and the birds. So it's, yeah, never a dull moment and very, very diverse. And then yeah. from the research perspective, we do a lot of our own internal research, but also support a lot of external research. So some of our larger trips are dugong health assessments with Dr Janet Lanyon at the University of Queensland in Moreton Bay, um, particularly important last year off the back of the floods that we saw the year prior. Um, and also working with the department, Carly Fitzpatrick tagging grey-nose sharks, talking about that same shark species that we're seeing lots of fish hooks, uh, fish hook fish hook related injuries um, we go out there and place internal acoustic tags and satellite tags so we can monitor their breeding sites and ensure that they're protected by green zones and those sorts of things so look I could go on and on there's a whole podcast in the incredible work that SeaWorld Foundation does um, and I could talk about it forever so yeah research and rescue we don't stop at anything every marine wildlife deserves to be treated equal and will respond if an animal's in need. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating to see how many species and you really generously share a lot of it on your social media just to get that education out to everyone and see, you know, such a variety of species that you guys care for and you rescue. Now, like you mentioned, you know, the foundation plays a huge role in rehabilitating sea turtles, the whales, like you spoke about. Do you have a particular species, I guess, though, that you really hold closest to your heart? Oh, look, it, again, it, it sounds like a bit of a cop-out, but it changes every day. Um, but of late, sharks are just blowing my mind. Like they are seriously the most cryptic but um, fascinating critters and we just haven't given them the credit that they deserve. Um, from a veterinary perspective, their healing capabilities, their ability to regenerate, you know, new cell growth is something that blows mammals away. Like sharks are just incredible healers and there's just so little that we know about them yet they're so abundant and so um 
you know, diverse out there in the oceans. And they're just this little cryptic space where a nerd like me that loves learning new things and pushing boundaries just thrives in because we've got this incredible taxa of animals that we still don't even know what normal blood parameters look like. We still don't know their reproductive physiology. We still don't know if they can get cancer. And and one part about sharks that I'm really passionate about is there's still can sell there's still conjecture out there as to whether sharks can perceive pain or not. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of queries that sharks cannot perceive pain, therefore they don't warrant pain relief like other species. And and until that is proven or, or denied, I will continue to give pain relief to sharks because every animal is is equal to me um, and I can't see how physiologically they wouldn't perceive or couldn't perceive pain, but that's how little we know about them. So um, I don't know if I, yeah, I hold them dear to my heart because they're damn cute. We had a thresher shark the other day and it's beautiful eyes, but next level. Um but yes, sharks—they're just—they're just incredible, and people probably didn't expect that. They probably expect me to say, you know, dolphin or seals, which are equally incredible animals and adorable. But sharks, just this minute, there's yeah, they've just got me good. And no, I think I, as I well, love that like you said that, yeah, and like the <laughs> idea of that most people have quite a negative association with sharks, but they are just absolutely crucial in our ecosystems. And th- like you said, there's so much that we don't know about them that we're still learning. Yeah, and if no one knows what a thresher shark is, make sure you Google it because their faces, they've got these little rounded snub noses and these uh, huge dark eyes that they legitimately are cute like seals. You know how seals just kill you with their beautiful big eyes or eastern grey kangaroos have those incredible lashes and those eyes, you could just they're just adorable. Well, I never thought I'd say shark's eyes were adorable and akin <laughs> to an eastern grey kangaroo, but Google it. I, I, you won't, you'll be surprised. I had to Google um, a cookie cutter shark a couple of months ago because, you know, obviously they cause quite a lot of injuries on seals and I'm not going to say that they're cute. They are very strange looking animals. Yes. A little bit different. Yeah, normally <laughs> sharks don't go in the same sentence until I yeah. saw a thresher shark. But anyway, no, sharks are adorable and, um, yeah, very underestimated and got a very bad reputation for all the wrong reasons. Now, um, circling back to the reality of rescue and rehab, what would you say is the chance of percentage of a successful release or is that really species dependent? Very species dependent um, and, and age dependent. For example, an inshore bottlenose dolphin, high chance of rehab and release back out into the wild because usually they succumb to things like injury or misadventure and do silly stuff because they're found in the waterways where a lot of human activity lies. But your offshore bottlenose dolphins are more of a pelagic species and usually if they strand and we're having to intervene, usually it's due to a virus, morbidly virus, toxoplasmosis, brucellosis. These are diseases that are commonly fatal and therefore that animal stranded for a reason. And usually if they're not a straightforward euthanasia, those offshore bottlenose dolphins won't last that long in rehab. So really a species dependent um, and case by case. And also age as well. You know, we had a false killer whale 
Floyd that was in care a couple of years ago, a sub-adult. He was the perfect age for rehab, a really good candidate for rehab. But I don't know if an adult would have survived, not survived, I don't think an adult would have thrived as well as Floyd did being that he was a sub-adult. So, and even sex for that matter, you know, female versus male with some of these species, um, you know, females tend to do a little bit better than some things compared to males. So, yeah, it really is species dependent um, and very case by case and very much much dictated by why they presented in the first place. It was really Makes interesting sense. following along um, Floyd's story and, you know, such a first probably for you guys and such an incredible lesson to have learned from being able to rehabilitate, you know, and contribute towards that animal. I guess if you could say one sort of thing to the listeners that would help contribute to the increasing numbers of human wildlife, human related wildlife threats, what sort of thing would it be? Look, I suppose it's <laughs> the biggest thing or the biggest impact that I see is, you know, recreational fishing gear or boating, boating related injuries. And I think that a lot of that comes down to negligence. You know, I know I'm preaching to the converted. So what I probably have to say that the listeners are already well aware of it because we've already de dedicated our lives to animals. But we just need to be conscious that every environment that we step into and we conduct activities in, we are sharing it with the incredible fauna and flora around us. Um, and people who go flying down Moreton Bay on a jet ski at full throttle, they're not going to see a floating, you know, green turtle and are likely to strike it. Um, so, you know, that that sort of level of negligence is what I'm talking about. Or if you do accidentally, you know, catch a, a turtle whilst you're out fishing, don't cut the line, bring the animal in, you know, bring it in, let's, let's remove that hook safely, ensure that animal's got the best chance to thrive into the future. So, yeah, just thinking about your actions and just constantly reminding yourself that, you know, we live Did it pause for you guys? Yeah. Oh, no. Hello? Oh, oh sorry. sorry. It just froze on your answer. That's okay. You're there? Yeah, yes. we're there yes. now. I hopefully, it recorded your last bit of your answer, but you just froze for a little bit, but we're back. Yeah. We're back. I was blabbing anyway, so it was probably a really good shut up now, Claire. You're repeating yourself. No, not at all. It's one of those things where we just saw your face and we're like, oh, did it freeze? Oh, no, I, actually, I was actually just going to agree wholeheartedly. Um, I think that we love these environments. We go out on these speedboats or on our boats and um, to experience this beautiful nature or experience um, Moreton Bay and dugongs and turtles and that kind of stuff. And the best thing we can do is just be really mindful that they're in the environment so to take it slow so I think that's that's wonderful advice that's for sure uh now we would absolutely love to dedicate a whole episode of training talks and tales to mental health but um you know that's for another day <laughs> um being a veterinarian the topic of mental health would be a big one and losing animals no matter how long you've known them, no matter what your role is, without a doubt would be the hardest part of um, your job, especially I imagine within rescue and rehab, you'd see a lot higher rate. Um, you'd be exposed to a lot more. How do you deal with these losses? Has it just become something that is easier with time um, in your many years in the field? No, absolutely not. It does not get easier with time. For me, um, you know, 
I see it as being, being in a quite a privileged position to be able to render or offer euthanasia as a treatment option for animals. I think it's, I see it as a positive outcome for animals. I will euthanize an animal if I know that that is the best welfare outcome for that animal. And I actually see it as a positive outcome. So therefore that helps with that mental health facet. I don't see it as death as being a negative outcome. I see it as being positive. That animal was in our care. We did X, Y, and Z, but or, or the diagnostic test determined X, Y, and Z. We know that prognostically the outcome is poor as opposed to prolonged suffering. I can offer an option for that animal to have a good, a welfare outcome. Um, and that is how I perceive euthanasia. So I don't see it as negative. I see it as a positive. And yes, um, you know, in rehab and, and rescue, we see a, a high incidence of it. And I think in the first instance, if a member of public is able to get their hands on a squawking rainbow lorikeet, for example, or a pesky Australian gannet, then that animal's in a pretty poor condition or pretty poor state to begin with. Um, I actually do find it harder, um, you know, to, to make that decision with the collection animals because I see them as members of our team. Um, I don't see them as, as any indifferent to the human team members um, and making that decision for euthanasia obviously comes with that emotional burden a lot more. But again, I see it as a, a, as a privilege to be able to give that team member um, an option to, to go with dignity um, and to go with minimal suffering. So I do see it as quite a, a positive thing. I've absolutely never thought about it in that way. So I'm really glad that you spoke about it in, in such a beautiful light, actually, because when I was little, all I wanted to be was a vet. But the idea of having that decision and that you know pressure associated with that role was terrifying to me. So it's actually really nice to hear you speak about it in, in kind of a different way than I've ever heard before. Yeah, and I, I do. I, I truly mean, I mean, it still hurts because ultimately death is still death. And, and if when you say goodbye to a loved one, whether it be, you know, an animal or, or a human for that matter, it's never easy no matter how prepared or how professional or how ready you are. Um, but for me, I always ensure that I've given that animal my all. And if that all means that that animal's not going to have a good outcome, then I see it as a, tre a worthy treatment option for that animal. Um, and that's how I can turn it into a positive. Absolutely. And um, I imagine a lot of the time as you making that assessment, um, am I just prolonging the inevitable, you know, like I need to make this decision and like you said, um, have that animal go with dignity in some cases. So I love the way that you said that as well. It's about your role or being anxious about your day is 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 also something that, that we we are talking about more and accepting more as being commonplace um, in, in our staff members. So yeah, it's mental health. It's 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 a great topic to talk about because I think it's inevitable that we all experience it. And if we didn't experience it, we might be in the wrong jobs, to be honest, because it, it's a very turbulent, dynamic, varied role, and and we're giving so much to the to the animals around us and trying to create the best environment for those animals around us. So if we were neutral to emotions I'd be a little bit worried about the person in the role to be honest <laughs> yeah I agree and I think you're right that stigma has changed and the um it's not so taboo anymore to be like hey I'm actually um suffering from a bit of burnout or I have been um you know really affected by the death of this animal and and it's just so um open now and I really appreciate that because 
you know, we only respect and we only understand how to work with other people going through this because perhaps we've gone through it ourselves and that kind of thing. So having that open communication and conversation is very important, that's for sure. Now, um, we do have two more questions. Uh, They're from our listeners. So UK, if we just jump into those. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, I love this one. Do you have any tips for someone hoping to get into a veterinarian role? Oh, good question. And I suppose if I could tell myself this um, 20 years ago, maybe I would have dove into it a little bit sooner. But don't give up. It's not unattainable. It's not unachievable. But from the outset, before you get into this career, it absolutely is um, perceived to be an unattainable career. And it's not. If I can do it, anyone can do it and I did it based on passion and sheer determination and I didn't let anyone get in my way of obtaining that qualification and then coming back into the zoo industry. So um, with that being said, don't tell yourself you can't and don't let anyone tell you you can't. If you don't get in um, to vet school first time round, doesn't matter, no one does apply again. We've got multiple vet schools in Australia, um, but the five years of hard, heavy study is well worth it. Um, I love every day that I work in this job. And it's not just because I work at SeaWorld, which I'm very biased, is the most incredible job. Being able to be a zoo vet um, across the many organisations I worked with was the dream. But I did do a bit of domestic work and worked at an emergency hospital and still loved being a vet. So if you're thinking about it, do it. It's it's an incredible career, um, and I love I love being in this position of being a vet. I think it's really inspirational being able to hear your story, and uh, hopefully a lot of the listeners gain a lot from it. From starting as a keeper, or you know, if if you're a trainer and you're thinking about it, but you're quite cemented mm-hmm. in that role, that does not mean that you're not completely okay to progress and you know develop into a brand new career path for you. Yeah, and I suppose the big thing with science is science is black and white. The heart works because of this, this and this. The kidneys filter the blood because of this, this and this. It's black and white. So the sheer amount of content, it's heavy because there's so much to learn. But once you learn it, you learn it and you grow from that information. So I can imagine doing law and those sorts of journalistic type, you know, like what you guys are doing interviews. My God, you're going to be (laughs) thinking on your feet. It's hard. There's a lot of grey to it. But science is science and learning about something that you're so passionate about. I loved learning about the body and the physiology and the anatomy and then being able to apply that to the pharmacology and the surgery and stuff around a subject that I was so passionate about. It, it came, I don't want to say it came effortlessly because it did not. It was really hard and every day is hard, but it, it came more organically. So, yeah, if you're thinking about it and you're passionate about animals, it's pretty incredible and a very rewarding role. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds it for sure. Now, question number two was, do you have a stand-up procedure that you've been able to be a part of during your career so far? Oh, that's a really good question. And, look, there's been several, I must say. And, look, the hardest the hardest thing with that question is you always hold on to your failures more than your successes. I think that's just human instinct, talking about mental health and whatever. Um, it's harder to let go of your, your fails and we all fail at things, right? Um, but, look, I, I must admit, we'll go to something more recently. Last year we had Bernie, uh, inshore bottlenose dolphin that had really incredible fishing line entanglement. He was 
feeding off um, Harry Atkins Reef in Morden Bay and was found himself entangled in all sorts of fishing line. Um, we were able to capture that individual and it was determined that he had pretty significant injury to his dorsal fin, um, which deemed or, or well, we felt he was at risk of being further entangled if we didn't do something about it. So we brought him back to SeaWorld, brought out a crew from the US and um, Dr. Gordon Caulfield, who's a veterinary specialist surgeon, assisted me with doing a dorsal fin amputation to correct the defect on the dorsal fin. Wow. Um, so we did a general anaesthetic on this dolphin. It's the first time a wild dolphin has been anaesthetized this century. So that in itself was massive. Um, and then Gordon and I did the surgery to smooth it out or, and to level out that dorsal fin. Um, and we have since released Bernie back out in Morton Bay and we're doing Dugong health assessments in November. And some of our team members saw um, Bernie back out there. So it was a pretty incredible case to be able to assist that individual but conducted a really cool surgery did a general anesthetic on a dolphin which is really um yeah quite a novel thing to be doing um and then to see her thriving back out there in the world is pretty incredible wow that's amazing and i guess bernie would be quite easy to identify out in the wild now so it'd be great for people yeah, to be able to spot her right. That's it, because we do use dorsal fin patterns to identify <laughs> turtles. So our Dolphin Research Australia and some of the Seawell Foundation crew do go out there and do um, dolphin population surveys. Um, so we do have multiple photos of Bernie since her release back in April of last year. Yeah, amazing. Claire, honestly, I feel like we might have to get you back on for part two because I feel like we could talk to you and, you know, everything that you do for hours, you're Stories inspirational, what you guys are up doing now, the foundation, SeaWorld itself is amazing work. And I love coming down to visit you guys. I always recommend going to SeaWorld to anyone, everyone on this podcast quite frequently. So thank you so much for your time today. We are both so grateful to have had you on the podcast. No, my pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. And yeah, everyone come and check out SeaWorld. We're 140 teams strong of some incredible staff members who would love to show you around and show you some of the incredible training that our staff members are conducting. So um, any listeners out there that want to visit, come and visit. Yeah. And it's on the Gold Coast, which is a beautiful part of Australia. So. <laughs> sure <Why> is. <laughs> Thanks so much again, Claire. Thanks, Thank ladies. You. Bye. Wow, that was so interesting. I loved that. I feel like she was so engaging. And like we mentioned in the episode, I think it's so much more inspiring the fact that she started as a keeper and a trainer and then um, really pursued that passion and believed in herself because it would be easy to do, be like, oh, no, nah, like vets are, vet is too hard. I have to be too smart to do that. Like not me. And she just believed in herself and she did it. So I love that. Good on her. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really hope that a lot of the listeners took a lot from that talk too, because I'm sure there's people out there inspiring to be veterinarians or just a little bit more interested, I guess, in um, what the role entails. And her role is pretty special and pretty unique. So yeah, I really hope everyone enjoyed it. As always, we'll chuck all of her socials and contact details in the show notes. So please feel free to reach out to her if you do have any questions. But I think that's us wrapping up for now, Tess. Uh, we will speak to you all next week. Have a good week. Bye. Bye. Bye.